What is up, everybody? I'm back with another edition of the Macro Insights Podcast, where I have a very, very special guest, Jay, at Special Situations on Twitter. Uh, I mean, if you're if you're around Twitter Spaces, I'm sure you've heard Jay and him and him and his team provide some great, great insights on everything macro related in the stock market. So if you haven't checked it out already, be sure to check out their newsletter and their Twitter account because they put out great content time in and time out. But Jay and I have a quality conversation. And if you've heard him on any medium before, you know that this is going to be an absolute banger of a conversation. So be sure to tune in. But remember, ladies and gentlemen, please, please, please remember that everything that you hear in this podcast is for entertainment purposes only and is strictly the opinion of Jay and myself and should not be taken as financial advice. I repeat, it should not be taken as financial advice. Now, let's get into the episode. Whoosh. What is up, everybody? I'm back with another edition of the Macro Insights Podcast, where I've got a very special guest. You've probably heard him on Twitter spaces or around Twitter, seen his great content that he's putting out. But it's Jay from the Special Situations. He's got a research newsletter. He's managed over $2 billion at Goldman. He shares a lot of education ideas on SPACs. There's a lot of various different things. And he's also got the SpecialSitsResearch.com where he's got a group of people working on that. So with all that, a big mouthful there. But Jay, how are you doing today? Hey, pretty good, Brandon. Thanks for having me. Um, of course, of course. Yeah, I'm really excited. Been a pretty interesting start to the year. <laughs> to say the least, right? I mean, we've had a very eventful January. It's uh, We're recording this on Friday the 20th, so uh, after market closes, though, so hopefully nothing crazy happens over the weekend. You never know these days. But uh, on that note, like I, I spoke a little bit to your background, but why don't you tell us, I guess, a little bit uh, about, uh, you know, like how you kind of got started in investing and how you kind of found yourself, I guess, in that world. Yeah, sure. You know, I am an Indian American. My parents moved here in the 60s um, separately. Um, so my dad moved here first, lived in a restaurant, in the basement of a restaurant in Hell's Kitchen. If you think crime is bad now in New York, you have no idea what New York was like back then. Um, but... I, I grew up in New York, and then we moved out into the suburbs, went to public school, um, graduated salutatorian, uh, top of my class, and was able to get a scholarship to go to school in Boston. Um, you know, I was fortunate in, you know, very early um, in my career, I started, you know, actually moving furniture for the Antiques Roadshow, and I met some pretty heavy hitters selling, you know, buying and selling antiques and, you know, figured out, you know, what investment management was. And then, you know, through a member of my church, actually, um, when one of the large financial services firms in uh, Connecticut was going through a period of layoffs, um, you know, found a temp job, basically installing Bloomberg and Reuters Bridge Station 2 old terminals that used to come as like a big box. And you'd have to, you know, do all the software registration on behalf of the traders and PMs. So I got my start doing that and then got, you know, essentially a recommendation from the founder of that firm um, to essentially work for a subsidiary in Boston, um, you know, doing risk management for a long short equity fund while I was going to school. And that was essentially my start in the investment management business, you know, during college, I was working, you know, six different jobs. I was working for the long short equity firm. I was working for their, their law firm at night. I was working for their socially responsible investing screening arm, which is now owned by Morningstar. Um, you know, a couple of days a week, um, was writing articles, uh, for a biology magazine on like fecal coliform bacteria in the Charles river. Um, which is basically excrement levels and uh, was doing basically all I could on top of my work study job to pay for my room and board because only my tuition was covered by the scholarship. And, you know, while I was there, I was 
able to met to get mentored by a lot of uh, sharp people because Boston, you know, was a big um, investment management hub. Um, and, you know, quickly after graduating, moved to the city. Uh, my first job was actually in private equity, working for uh, the maternal grandson of Thomas Watson, who started IBM, doing private equity uh, LBOs and mezzanine financings for him. And, you know, I uh, got exposed to the capital structure, the difference between a leverage loan and a high yield bond and a convertible uh, and a hybrid or a pref and equity and, you know, how to make money in different periods of time and in different economic climates and different parts of the capital structure. So that was good training. And then, you know, eventually I found myself um, at Goldman, went through the training program and was promoted there, um, essentially into a role where I was able to manage a portfolio of distressed debt investments, converts and merger arbitrage, along with um, what later became MLP and reconversions and spinoff and split off. So it was a really good opportunity to learn and get um you know a lot of responsibility in terms of um you know sizing trades doing risk management you know meeting with management teams of mid-cap and large cap companies across the united states um and you know after that you know worked at a couple other investment management firms you know did an, did something very entrepreneurial that you know was great for me and i sold it to a um a large venture capital firm, and then essentially retired um, during COVID and was essentially trading my own account. And I realized that there were a number of firms that had gone to zero fee trading after Robinhood and retail trading even before COVID in October of 2019 was starting to ramp from 19% of total volume to 35, 36% of total volume. And the, the craziness in the market was, was completely took me by surprise. And, uh, you know, me, you know, I used to use Twitter just to follow a couple macro accounts for information because I'm a special sits guy. I try to find diamonds in the rough or like good risk reward type securities that, you know, have, you know, two, three X upside for, for minimal downside and was pretty surprised. Um, you know, after having a really good 2020, you know, I realized that a lot of people were misinformed, didn't know anything about risk management, didn't know anything about macro, didn't know anything about industry risks or beta or how to ask questions from IR and really basic things that came naturally to me or, or I had to pick up early in my career. So I started, you know, just doing basic due diligence for free on Twitter and, you know, got a pretty large following. Um, and then in 2021, during the SPAC craze, I realized some of the misalignment between sponsors and underwriters and retail pipe investors and retail investors and really found a really interesting opportunity in 2021 to short the living bejesus out of these companies. A lot of them lied about their projections. They had very large pipe unlocks that you could track based on S1 filings where they would have a very large percentage of the float uh, unlock and essentially dump on retail investors and was able to track 180 day unlocks. And on the flip side, you know, because at that time, SPACs were in simply just cash boxes invested in treasuries and money markets, was able to go long some very cheap options and short overvalued DSPACs. And that, you know, was a really great strategy that made a lot of people a lot of money and you know, outside of my group of uh, comrades, um, a lot of people thought I was nuts, right? Because the asset class had done so well in the two years prior, it gone from a $10 billion industry that very few people knew anything about. I knew about it because, you know, Goldman focuses on SPACs and SPACs are a special sit, but very few people knew about the asset class. It ballooned from 10 billion to 200 billion in a very short period of time. And we took advantage of it and then you know, we I branched out into other areas of special sits that have done very well, given what's happened in the broader market, like closed down fund arbitrage, um, preferred trading, you know, buying hybrids and preferreds that are exchange traded, baby bonds, um, straight bonds and converts, 
um, and, you know, deep value equities that have high dividends. And, you know, that strategy has done actually very well over the past 18 months. Um, and we're getting ready for the next leg, um, you know, for the second half of this year. But, you know, this is a very interesting in environment because for the last 15 years, there has been just an insane amount of government support and quantitative easing um, that has resulted in the Fed owning at the peak about eight and a half trillion dollars worth of agency residential mortgage backed securities and treasuries. And rates went from, you know, zero to four percent in six months. Believe it or not, today, for the first time in 15 years, you can actually put money in a high yield savings account at PNC and make 4% with no, with no risk in an FDIC insured account. So, you know, we moved very heavily to cash, um, you know, over 50% cash and been earning a great yield there that, you know, we can kind of sit on the sidelines, get paid to sit on the sidelines um, and even, you know, make more than that by buying, you can buy floating rate AAA CLOs at 6%. And there are a lot of these opportunities that people just don't know about. Um, and the goal of mine is just to focus on education, right? Make your own decisions. We don't tell people what to do. We have databases that we share that we have a 700, uh, security database for prefs. We have a 450 name database for close, uh, for closed end fund arbitrage. We have a, we've just came out with a list of the 22 spinoffs that were pre-announced for 2023. And we, you know, we do analysis, high level and, and deep level, and people just decide on what they think um, on their own. So it's a, I think it's unique. If I had Twitter uh, in the 90s, I think life would have been a lot easier. You, like, <clears throat> it was so difficult to get information back then. And you didn't know what was a lie, what was real. You know, today, within seconds, you know, you can figure out through three or four sources, you know, what's, what's real, what's not real, what's coming from the company, what's a fabrication, is this merger, you know, likely going to happen? Is it just, is it just someone blowing smoke on a personal position of theirs? So I think we're in a really, I think we're in the golden age of information transparency. I think that there's more information available to individuals than there ever has been. And it, that's really important because the investing game is the hardest game in the world, right? You have people spending quant firms spending hundreds of millions of dollars in research to get a uh, two second edge. They're building fiber optic cables, right? Directly to the New York stock exchange and setting up offices, you know, within five miles to get the biggest edge. So the U S market is very, very liquid. It's very difficult um, to generate alpha, but it's also something that I'm passionate about. And I think that there are a lot of corner cases, um, you know, where you can actually generate a, a pretty good sharp ratio. Um, and for those that, you know, who don't know what a, what a sharp ratio is, um, invest, you know, investing 101, it's just a basic ratio that compares, you know, the return of an investment um, with its risk without going into, into too much detail. But, um, you know, to lighten up the conversation a little bit, um, we'll go into you know, two examples of really smart people who lost almost everything in the stock market, right? Um, let's talk about Albert, Albert Einstein, right? Everyone knows Einstein. Uh, he won the Nobel Prize um, in 1921. He took that money and put most of it in the stock market. And what most people don't realize is Einstein lost a very large percentage of his net worth in the 1929 stock market collapse, right? So, you know, that's Einstein. Now, let's talk about Isaac Newton. So Isaac Newton, in 19, in this is actually 1721, he uh, he lost about 20,000 pounds. Now, 20,000 pounds in, in 1721 is like a million dollars today. So he lost his, you know, a very large percentage of his fortune. He, he in fact, lost um, almost the, his entire gains in the stock market for the 10 years prior to that. So... You know, and what he lost money on was his South South Sea share. So, you know, you're talking about two of the most brilliant scientists in our, you know, recorded history, um, losing sizable fortunes in the stock market. It's important to realize that this is not an easy game. And I get a, I get a lot of DMs for people, especially during COVID. I was getting DMs, you know, because everyone was locked down. You know, should I do this full time? I have this amount of capital. 
And to be very frank with you, to generate consistent returns and consistent alpha, you know, I think people were under under a delusion that they could trade crypto and monkey JPEGs and small cap unprofitable stocks and make a full time living with a very small amount of capital. And it's just not realistic. You know, for those who don't have the time, you know, long term index funds and municipal bonds, you know, are a very easy way to uh, to barbell and generate a decent long term return. And, you know, if you're working full time over 30, 40 years, you're going to generate many multiples of your money and retire comfortably. Um, you just need to save 20 percent of your income. But for those that are interested and have a passion about the capital markets and investing, I think the past three years have been the most exciting years that I've seen since 2008 to 11, that period. Um, so we can kind of dig in and talk about you know, what led up to this economic environment, you know, how the Fed is positioned, you know, what we think could happen on a go forward basis. And what are some economic indicators that we are tracking um, to, you know, to essentially develop an edge on how the next two years could play out? Yeah, I mean that that was great there. I mean, so there's there's a lot to unpack though, right? So you you talked about Twitter being kind of uh, I I mean we're being in the age of kind of sharing information, right? So like you have somebody like yourself with a ton of experience and a and a very awesome background. You know, it sounds like you were just grinding your way to make it to where you are today. So overall just an awesome story to hear where you're at and congratulations i mean i know it, it took a lot of hard work uh to get where you're at so that's awesome but um you know you're you're saying you said that the sharing of information now uh would have probably helped you greatly in the 90s uh, you know at, at that point when you're kind of first starting your career but you know how do you think that that's kind of i guess maybe shaped the narrative so to speak or maybe helped the the fomoing thing because you know without the sharing of information there wouldn't have been the you know the wall street bets maybe not as big of a gme shoot up and other things like that so you know for for the listeners at home what do you think i guess is the best way to kind of maybe filter out some of the noise and find some of these you know uh i guess more quality type accounts or quality type of people that are you know just putting out content like yourself well, it really just comes down to judgment and it comes down to fundamentals. Um, so, you know, in the late 90s, early 2000s, you had like Yahoo Finance message boards, right? And they were kind of like, that was kind of like Reddit. And you had people just making fun of each other, posting fake gains and losses. And human behavior doesn't really change, right? So we're talking about 20 years ago, you would see some of the same stuff, the pump and dumps, all that stuff was happening on the Yahoo Finance message boards. Now, Yahoo cut back on that a lot and they, they cleaned up the platform and, you know, Marissa Myers and her predecessors basically completely destroyed the company. So <laughs> they didn't have enough to invest in Yahoo Finance. But, um, you know, Twitter is kind of and, and, um, and Reddit are two areas where people um, post their personal opinions. So what you have to understand is that 99% of people who post have an agenda, Right. So they either own a security they're talking about, right? And they want it to go up or they're short a security that they're talking about and they want it to go down or they're selling research about a security and they have an agenda there, okay? And then the same thing when you think about the capital markets and the banking system, when you think about a bank, it makes money in three ways, right? Investment banks, when you read all these research reports and you don't know whether to believe them, well, it's right to be skeptical because... Banks make money by trading their, you know, their prime brokers and their trading counterparties with hedge funds, right? So they want to publish research so that hedge funds want to use them for trading. Two, they generate corporate access um, and meetings for these hedge funds. So they want to be on the company's good side. So they only they mostly publish good research about these companies so they get corporate access. <clears throat> Three. They generate a lot of revenue from issuing bonds and equity and follow-on offerings for these companies. So they want to be on good terms with the treasurer and the IR and the CEO and the CFO of these companies. So there's a lot of bias there. And finally, for banks that, this is number four, that have asset management arms, right? They want to grow their AUM. So 
believe it or not, Goldman's not just a bank. It has, you know, a couple trillion plus of AUM. Believe it or not, look at Morgan Stanley. They have a huge private wealth management arm. Same with JP Morgan. Same with Credit Suisse. Same with UBS. So all these firms, you know, oftentimes are bullish on the market, right? You know, 90% of the time because if they say anything negative to their clients and their clients pick it up, they're not going to increase their allocation. So it's really important to understand that. Now, when you're talking about retail, it's even in retail and free publications and a lot of the stuff that you see posted, you have to even be more careful. Because when you think about the, the WSB traders in AMC and GME um, and many other names, by the way, um, like Revlon, which filed for bankruptcy, you have to understand that they all have an agenda, but not only do they have an agenda, their trade was not based on fundamentals. Now, that doesn't mean that there is no reason, right, for the stocks to rally. If you have 100 million shares a day trading in a security with a very high short interest, it's going to go up, right? If you get, if you coordinate and get a million retail investors buying one QCIP, right, it's going to go up. So I will say that I mean, these people were, a lot of them were smart and they're well-educated and they understood short interests and they understood Delta hedging when it came to options and, you know, how that, how, if they bought, you know, an unbelievable amount of call options in a given week, right. That, that could potentially force a stock higher temporarily as well. But they also didn't understand very basic concepts of options trading, like driving implied volatility to three, 400. And what and how that made it very unlikely that a lot of their options would would actually result in you know in being in the money um, after those short term moves. So what I would like to say is like you need to use your own judgment. You need to understand why something is why someone is writing what they're writing. If they're a bank, I gave you the four reasons. If they're a retail you know investor in one of these groups and they're coordinating, you need to understand that these are likely going to be short term moves. And if the if the company doesn't do one thing which is generate sustainable long-term free cash flow, it's likely not a good investment. And this applies to every single company on the planet. I don't care if you're a rocket company and you're, or you're a company that has a really big TAM or you're a company that is, has a great IP or technology that, you know, every single company on the planet is either, is either valued on its current free cash flow or its future ability to generate free cash flow. So one of the ways that, you know, and we've several um, hundreds, hundred subscribers, one of the ways that it was really easy for us to outperform was by focusing on companies that generate free cash flow. Whether, whether you're a big company or mid cap company or small company, a U.S. company or non-U.S. company, the easiest first filter for you to do was, was to look at their, the company's ability to generate free cash flow and service its debt. If a company had a high leverage ratio of over three times debt to EBITDA or had a free cash flow yield that was negative, most of those companies that have underperformed the market since the since the taper of 2021. So, you know, one thing to note is that for long term investing, if you don't want, you know, a 50 to 80 percent drawdown. Right. And sometimes in a bear market, you'll see those even in good companies. But if you don't want that consistently in your investing career, an easy way to avoid that is to look at companies that you, you think can generate an over 5% free cash flow yield sustainably. And it's all relative to interest rates, right? So if interest rates went back to zero, your bogey can change a little bit. But either that are generating that free cash flow now or will be generating that free cash flow in the next couple of years, not five years or 10 years. Because that, in my opinion, is really speculation. And then you get into, you know, the room of the VCs, right? Which is what SPACs ended up doing. Retail investors didn't realize that VC investors, you know, they only need two of their companies to hit out of 10. Most of them, you know, have a handful of companies that are flat, have one or two that hit it out of the park and a couple of zeros. And that's how they, you know, they, they generate 20, 30% returns. It's just an average return. But you try to do that as a retail investor and you get three or four zeros in the SPAC world you're ruined, right? For every 50% you lose, you have to make 100% back. And I think a lot of investors don't realize that. Like if you have a big drawdown like that, 
and you're not focused on your downside, it could take you five years to recover those losses. Um, so going back to your original question, you know, there are a lot, there are biases in everything that is published in the world, whether it's banks, retail, or the media, you need to use your own judgment and try to understand why the author is writing what they're writing. And the easy way to, to avoid uh, getting into trouble is to find a few sources of data that are supposed to be unbiased, right? So like the Bloomberg's of the world, the Associated Presses of the world, like they will still have their biases, but you know, institutional traders pay like $40,000 a year right, to subscribe to Bloomberg Terminal, and they're paying for that type of accuracy. So, you know, I don't know the exact dollar amount today, but I think for like 10 or 10.99, you can get a Bloomberg like retail account and get access to their video feed, which is on a slight delay and get access to all their articles. I'm not affiliated with them, but, you know, Bloomberg, Reuters, the Associated Press, there's several publications, um, you know, and the poor man's Bloomberg is actually a website called Finviz. F-I-N-V-I-Z. It's essentially an aggregator of the top news sources and blogs. I'm not affiliated with them, but, you know, I have a lot of students. I used to mentor a lot of students in Boston and New York, and I always, I would always point them to Finviz. It's been around for, for over a decade, and it's like a free aggregator of, um, it's not going to have like minute by minute alerts, but um, you can actually also open a Seeking Alpha account and they have a lot of press releases, you can actually set alerts on there. It can tell you when one of your um, companies has a, has, a, has a press release or an alert. And another unbiased source of information is public filings, the SEC Edgar. So you can go on SEC Edgar whenever the company files an 8K or, or a uh, 10Q or a 10K, you, know, you can find information up to date on the SEC Edgar and also on the investor relations page, which a lot of people for some reason don't use. If you look at the company, you know, you can go PepsiCo investor relations, Google investor relations, uh, Microsoft investor relations, and it pulls up. And these companies not only will have their public filings, but they'll have their full annual reports, which is a 10K plus some additional um, marketing. So it looks nicer and it's easier to read. And then they have these earnings transcripts and earnings calls and webcasts you can listen to, along with Sometimes they'll have press releases and investor presentations, sometimes annually, sometimes quarterly, where you can actually visualize like for a refining company, right? Someone might know, not know what a refining company is. And there are three types of energy companies, upstream, which is exploration, midstream, which is pipelines and storage and downstream, which is, you know, essentially converting, you know, in a, um, you know, essentially crude oil into, you know, jet, jet fuel, um, distillates, diesel, and gasoline. So if you if you go through these presentations, a lot of the time there's educational material that explains how the business works. And that's how you you as a individual investor for for free, and if you you know if you sign up for one of these news accounts, um, for a very small monthly fee, can get access to a lot of information that 20 years ago would have cost a fortune. Um, so SEC Edgar is your friend. You need to learn how to use it. You need to learn how to use company search. You know, you need to learn how to how to how to look very quickly through a 10K, like understand what an income statement is, understand what a balance sheet is, understand what a cash flow statement is, you know, understand what a debt footnote is, understand how to read an MDNA management discussion and analysis. And that provides a lot of commentary and some forward-looking data, like what will capital expenditures be, you know, how's the industry doing. You need to look in the competitive analysis section, understand how to find comps and how to value companies. So if your company is trading at a 10 PE, understand why versus maybe a peer company is trading at a 20 PE. And that might be because there's better margins or better growth. Like it is a multi-year process to, to learn how to look for the right information um, and to do it in an efficient way. And I think, you know, you can start, but, you know, simply by going on the on an investor relations page of a company and digging into it. 
Yeah, and exactly like you said, I mean, it is pretty easy and a lot of it's free information that they just put out there publicly. So you can do your own research and kind of verify that. And that's where that's where I've I, I've kind of come to, to grips with is like, all right, if I see something on Twitter or something like that, I'm going to look into the IR page. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Look at look into it a little bit about myself or a little bit myself. But you mentioned something a little bit earlier and I want to kind of dive into it about, you know, where we're at and kind of how we got here. Um, because, you know, you've had you've had a ton of experience, you've experienced, you know, the 2008 crash. Uh, I don't know if you want to date yourself. I don't know if you've experienced the dot com. I was, I, was, I was there during the dot com boom. <laughs> OK, yeah, I didn't didn't know if you wanted to date yourself quite that much. But uh, yeah, I mean, how is this one maybe a little bit different and kind of like, you know, how do you think that we got here? Um, I, I could get into my opinion a little bit afterwards, but yeah, go for it. Yeah. So, you know, I talked about it a little bit earlier as well. So, you know, you essentially had Robinhood, right, go to zero fee trading and then TD Ameritrade and several other firms went to zero fee equity trading. And it was really, you know, what was supposed to be the end of the bull market in 2019. You remember what happened in 2018 with essentially the taper tantrum. And we, we were going into 2019, the economy was already slowing. Most people don't realize that the economy was already slowing in 2019. We were approaching the end of a cycle and the cycle essentially got extended by COVID and everyone was locked down. It was a, you know, a once in a hundred year type pandemic, you know, the first one we've had since the Spanish flu and the government in the United States and several others around the world, you know, locked, um, you know, several hundred million people indoors. And then a lot of people that in, in a service economy like the U.S., you know, needed supplemental income. So the government essentially provided, um, you know, the federal government essentially uh, provided additional unemployment um, checks on top of what the state benefits were. They put, you know, several trillion dollars in back into the market through um, what they call quantitative easing. And they grew the Fed's balance, they doubled the Fed's balance sheet to 8.5 trillion. And they also had, you know, 12 different lending programs, right? They had small business lending programs, they had something called the PPP, where there was $600 billion of cash that was disseminated across the U.S. economy, which, by the way, more than half was fraud. Um, I, you know, I personally have, have researched and know people that you know, never employed um, anyone, but were taking PPP funds from the government. And because of the archaic way that our, our IRS is set up, it should be fully automated. right? If you go to Canada, right, they tell you what your taxes are. And then you, you edit it later. Um, there's several countries in the world that have more advanced uh, tax systems. It, it's, it's funny that we're still set up this way. I guess it just favors the, the accounting lobby. But, you know, there was there were several people that got away with this. And it drove a $7.5 trillion appreciation in real estate. Because where did that money go? Right. If you're at home and your expenses are low because you're not traveling. Right. If your kid's going to private school, you don't have to pay for that because you cancel you cancel your, that private school. You're not paying for, you know, basically any luxuries outside of what you can order at home. It resulted in a two and a half trillion dollar increase in savings. Not just that that's outside of the government stimulus. There was a two point five trillion dollar increase in savings just because people weren't spending into the out into the economy. They weren't taking vacations. They weren't you know, doing all the things that you do when you're going out and about. So that plus the stimulus, you know, a lot of that money went into buying high-end cars. The auto industry completely boomed. And then it was high-end real estate and, and uh, people, you know, investing in rental properties and people buying second homes outside of New York. There was an influx into the Sun Belt, and that essentially and into the suburbs like Connecticut you know, there were homes that saw 40% increases in, in prices when I was living in Connecticut, where their prices hadn't changed in five years prior to that. So there's seven and a half trillion dollars in the real estate market that was created in net wealth and $2.5 trillion in equities. So 66% of Americans in their nuclear family, so their parents and their immediate family, or them, they themselves own a property in America. And Roughly 35% of Americans have a 401k. So that wealth, you know, completely changed the landscape. And then you had this thing called crypto, which grew into a, almost a $3 trillion industry overnight. 
So you had those three asset classes. And what most people don't talk about is that you also had private businesses doing really, really well and private equity firms marking up their balance sheets. And, you know, that's a $5 trillion industry. So you had huge changes in, in the U, in U.S. wealth. I think that over the past three, you know, over the, basically from 2019 to at the end of 2021, there's 20 trillion in wealth created in the United States, which is unbelievable, unreal. Um, and that, you know, in the four and a half trillion of savings, most of which was middle uh, middle class and above, you know, has created an environment where the Fed has no choice but to tighten policy um, to get inflation lower because it's not just the goods inflation. So we had supply chain issues, obviously, due to COVID. And that was essentially we started calling infl calling inflation um, back in 2021. Um, so I was noting, noticing that inflation was getting out of hand in the summer and everyone was just like, that's nuts. We haven't had inflation in 20 years. What are you talking about? It'll go away in an instant, right? People aren't having kids. We've had secular deflation, the Amazon effect. This is not going to last. And I said, well, it's not as simple as that because it's supply side and demand side. So you have these supply chain issues. And what people didn't realize is like the, an average car has like 1800 semiconductor chips in it. And you look at the semiconductor supply chain, you, you, you have a fab, you know, you, you essentially, you have wafers and you make those wafers into complicated circuits. And then you have a chip and then you, you have to package that chip and the packaging happens in a different country than it was fabricated. And then that, you know, and then if it's packaged in that country, you know, you have to charter a vessel and then, you know, vessels due to, you know, delays in transport, you know, the day rates for those vessels was up five, six X during COVID. Those vessels were at the ports. There wasn't enough staffing at the ports. So those vessels would get stuck at the ports, which would result in a higher expense. And then we had two and a half million people retire early and half a million people die. The average truck driver is 50 years old. So you had a lot of the logistics, um, you know, workforce had either retired or retired early or, you know, didn't want to work the same hours that they were working before because they were day trading or doing some side gig that they could, that they learned how to do when they're at home. So these, so the first taste of it was the supply chain, you know, goods, goods inflation and that goods inflation rolled the economy. On top of that, you had, you had massive drought um, around the world. So I don't know if you believe in global warming or not, but we just had the warmest winter. You know, it was like 60 degrees in New York in January. Um, you had the warmest winter easily in the last five years. Um, and that was, you know, and what's been happening is that, um, you know, there is a, a broader trend um, of the undoing of, of a lot of the globalization and outsourcing trend that we've had since the 80s. And economies are becoming more insular. We've had trade tariffs. We had trade tariffs with China during the Trump administration, you know, well before COVID even started. And, you know, all these conf factors, these confluence of factors was driving inflation higher for the first time in a, in a real mean really meaningful way since the 70s. And then all of a sudden we had Russia invade Ukraine. And that resulted in not just that immediate crude oil spike to $130 a barrel, but in U Ukraine and Russia control about 40% of the world's grain and corn supply. And they also control uh, well over 20% of the world's nitrogenous fertilizer supply, which is also tied to natural gas prices. Pot you know, they control potash and uh, nitrogenous fertilizers. And, you know, combined, it wasn't just oil. So it's oil, natural gas, fertilizers, and grains. And when natural gas prices started spiking, a lot of the industrial companies in Europe shut down because they couldn't operate. You know, industrial manufacturing plants take up a lot of methane natural gas fuel to power these turbines you know that power these factories so they had to shut down and believe it or not they had to shut down a lot of factories that manufactured fertilizers so that made fertilizer prices go up and resulted in not only supply chain issues but food prices and energy prices going up and then people realized okay well food and energy prices are going up um i need to make more money right 
So then, you know, people started refusing to work unless they got a raise. They had saved up a lot of money um, during COVID, like with child tax care credits. I mean, there are people getting, you know, additional income of like up to 40,000 a year from the U.S. government, um, even if they didn't have a high paying job. So there's a lot of pent up savings and people started demanding wages. Now, you may not remember this, but I've been looking at you know, I started working at CVS as a kid and I was earning less than $5 an hour. And in certain parts of the US working at CVS, you were still making $7 an hour just a few years ago. So wages, real wages had been negative um, for the last 30 years and even nominal wages had barely moved. And we were at a point in time in 2019, 2020, where there is a lot of minimum wage reform in the United States. And that plus you know, the savings that had been built up gave, um, you know, laborers a lot of negotiating power because one, our immigration policies had become a lot tighter. Then two, you had 2.5 million people retire early. Then three, because of COVID, half a million people died. So at one point in time, even before COVID, there was a lack of 4 million engineers in the US. So COVID just made that situation a lot worse. And during COVID, you had salespeople at tech companies right out of college making over $200,000, like unheard of, right out of college, you know, making insane pay packages. So I think the Fed realized, you know, the 20 trillion of wealth created, you know, and, you know, the fact that rents were going up, food prices were going up, and wages were going up, was going to, going to create a situation where if they didn't get inflation under control, it would be a lot more difficult to get it under control if um, consumer expectations of inflation became unhinged. And I think they've done a good job of getting consumer one and five year expectations for inflation, you know, back to very low levels. Um, but the problem is still that headline inflation is high. And I think it's, you know, a matter of time. Now, the Fed made a key decision not to raise rates. I don't know if you know, but like Latin America, India, many different large countries in the world, you know, were raising rates months before the Fed, right? And, you know, the Fed made its decision, you know, we're the world's reserve currency, you know, we were the, you know, the hub of innovation that, that created the vaccines. Um, and the, the Fed, you know, made a key decision to support um, service the service workers in the service economy by keeping conditions loose for longer than they should have. And I think they've even acknowledged that. Many of the Fed members, even the voting members and Paolo himself have, have acknowledged that. But if you remember the minutes back in 2021, when they were first deciding to taper, a lot of people didn't realize, Powell called out the PE multiple of the S&P 500 in the frigging Fed minutes. And he was like, the, the forward multiple on the, on the S&P 500 is too high. And everyone just ignored it, right? Like all these tech gurus and furus and fintwit talking heads were continuing to buy tech stocks aggressively into 2022 and then just got completely smoked. And our view is that the Fed has no choice but to keep rates higher for the majority of 2022 because inflation will come down on its own, but they need to get it to fall to a point where consumer expectations don't think that we can have another resurgence of this type of inflation. And there, you know, Powell himself has acknowledged that good deflation, good deflation, which I agree, will go negative this year, right? Like the price of used cars, you know, the price of like clothing, apparel, what you see at the department stores, what you see at um, you know, Target and Walmart on the good side is going to fall. Food is going to take a little bit longer. Um, we're already seeing rents decline. We're already seeing property prices decline. Today, Barclays came out um, and said they think, you know, property prices are going to be down in the teens, residential. Commercial could be down even more in certain categories. So, you know, I think personally think in places like Canada, you could see real estate prices down 40% because they have floating rate mortgages and shorter duration mortgages. So, in the U.S., we're blessed, and we have 30-year fixed-rate mortgages. Most people lock them in around 3% or under 3% if you had a decent credit score. Even if you didn't have a great credit score, you were able to lock mortgages in under 4%. And I don't think we're going to see that um, for a couple of years. 
And, you know, that's going to result in the housing economy slowing down. There's several million jobs tied to the auto and housing economies, both which require financing. So it's inevitable that two of the large drivers of the US economy are going to slow down. Um, but the key thing to know, I actually posted a graph of this today, is that unemployment continues to go down, right? We're at 3.4%. It's a lagging indicator. But a lot of the headline uh, layoffs they're reading about, 15,000 at, you know, at, at uh, Microsoft, you know, 6%, 15,000 at Google, you know, layoffs at Salesforce, layoffs at, you know, every large tech and financial, every large investment bank, you know, those layoffs are white collar workers, okay? And on average, I was reading a study, I believe it was, I don't know if it was Career Builder or one of the job sites put out a piece and they essentially said that on average, this is just an average stat, 60 to 70% of engineers that were that have been laid off from big tech companies have found a new job in three months. So you're reading about these layoffs, but no one's adjusting for the fact that most of these people are finding a job almost right away, right? And then the nursing sector, the education sector, the industrial sector, the transportation sector are still adding tens of thousands of jobs a week. So the Fed has, it, has a very difficult uh, decision to make in that they have to control inflation. And one of the ways to control inflation is to lower aggregate demand. And how are you going to lower aggregate demand? You have to slow down the, the economy and you have to slow it down to the point where there are layoffs. So the Fed has openly said that, you know, we expect unemployment, you know, to get to four to five percent. And in the SEP, which they publish, that we will get to um, growth of a 0.5 percent. Now, it's the Fed. They're not going to say we're going to crash the U.S. economy and have it go into a recession, and have negative growth. Right. They're, they're just not going to say that or put it in writing. But 0.5 percent is pretty much as close as you can get. So whether we have a soft landing or a more moderate recession, I think it's just semantics. I think the economy is slowing down already. We think, I think it's going to slow down a lot. And the Fed always tightens too much or loosens too much. I think the Fed is going to make a mistake of tightening too much and keeping rates higher for longer, which is going to result in a decline in earnings that we haven't seen since 2008 for a lot of the S&P 500 and Russell companies that we look at day to day. Um, but it's one of the most unique environments I've ever seen, because when you think about sit back and think about inflation, inflation means companies charge higher prices and their revenues go up. Right. Look at what happened with PepsiCo. Right. They saw a 22 percent increase in revenue. But most of that was price. It wasn't like they're selling more. Um, you look at Amex, you know, everyone's looking at, oh, look at Amex data, look at MasterCard data. The economy is great. Well, of course, it's going to be up because airlines jacked up their prices. Right. So what do you spend most of your credit card uh, monthly spend on on travel? So airline rates are up. Hotel rates are up. Um, your grocery bills are up. So a lot of the growth in credit card spending is reflecting inflation, not actual real growth. So we think that we're already in a pretty severe slowdown. You can actually track um, the ISM data. You know, ISM prices paid actually lead CPI. So we think that both inflation and growth are going to decline this year. You could actually track the inversion of the twos, tens, and the three-month, 30-year yield curve, right? And that inversion is telling that bond investors think the economy is going to slow down to a recession. You can look at, um, you know, several indicators. Um, you know, PPI tends to lead CPI. Uh, M2 money growth has fallen to almost a negative state, right, which also leads CPI. Um you can look at the change in monthly savings, which points to the strength of the consumer. So there's several leading indicators that we track, um, including the LEI, um, including ISM PMI, including ISM new orders, um, that can give you some information if, if you haven't you know, made a, a conclusion about um, how, how the economy could see its growth decline. And then you can, based on your experience and research, you can figure out which industries are the best uh, position to do well in that environment and which industries are the worst position. And, you know, you can make long and short uh, decisions on your own based on that type of information. So we think that, you know, this is the year for income, right? There is a whole 
set of securities that people don't even know about that you can actually trade in, in any retail account, which is called the preferred asset class. And they're, they're believe it or not, they're companies that pay 11% dividends that are senior to equity. Even Goldman Sachs has an eight and a half percent dividend pref. You know, you have to be pretty bearish to think Goldman is going bankrupt with the 12% tier one capital ratio. The banks are four times as strong as they were back in 2008 because they've cut their leverage down pretty dramatically after all the reg regulation. You had Volcker, Basel III, um, even Jamie Dimon was complaining that he thinks his, his capital ratios are too high, that JP Morgan's going to be fine. He actually wants to increase leverage. So that's the type of environment. He's doing a $12 billion buyback right now, share buyback. Um, but that's this is the environment we're in. It's different than 2008 because the banks are really strong. You know, revenues have been going up because inflation actually benefits companies. So now let's fast forward from last year where um, goods inflation was rising faster than wage inflation. That is really, really positive for companies. So earnings look great, even though the economy was slowing down. In 2023, that kind of flips. Goods inf inflation should be falling and wage inflation should still be going up. It should slowing, but it's still going up. What that means is that companies will see their margins compressed. Our view is that EBIT margins, which is operating profit, earnings before interest and taxes, margins actually peaked, okay, in some sometime between 2021, 2022. And the average S&P 500 company is likely going to see its margins compressed by 100 to 200 basis points or, you know, 7 to 8% this year. And that is going to offset some of the revenue growth that they're seeing in the first and second quarter. And by the end of the year, we could see earnings decline versus consensus expectations. Because it doesn't matter what we saw last year, it's all versus consensus expectations. They could be down 15% versus consensus. Um, so that's an environment where, especially with interest rates at 4%, you know, I know people look at PE ratios, like a, a 17 times PE ratio isn't that cheap. Right. A 17 times P ratio when rates are zero is very cheap. Right. Because what's your what's your opportunity cost? Right. What else are you going to do? But in an environment where you could put your money in a bank account and make four percent, that's actually not very cheap, especially when you're seeing margins go from all time high levels to declining. So that's kind of the environment we're in. And we think that, you know, it's an environment for yield where if you can make. 10, 11, and in some names where there's a pull to par, where you're buying securities at 70, 80% of par, um, 70, 80 cents. And, you know, we're going into an environment in 2024 where I think we cut interest rates. Those could go back to par. You can make 30, 35% in fixed income and preferred securities. You don't even need to buy a stock, right? So that's the type of environment we're in. But we think that, you know, there's certain sectors that are going to be attractive in the second half of this year and next year. And, you know, we're looking forward to that. There are a lot of companies that have derated 70, 80%. And even companies, you know, that might have, that generate free cash flow, but have higher valuations, um, like in the cybersecurity space, you know, those companies don't look dirt cheap, but they still have the ability um, to see if, in, if, in, if interest rates were to reverse in 2024, 2025, I could see some of those stocks double. Um, so, you know, we do, my job is to, you know, for myself and from an education perspective is, you know, this year to find, you know, kind of low risk, high yield type opportunities and some asymmetric shorts. Like there's still some SPACs with unlocks. There's still companies in the shorts that we have on now. They're not the unprofitable tech names like we had on for the last two years. We're looking for shorts in commercial real estate space right? Where people are fooled by the dividends some of these companies are paying. And you can actually look this up. You know, you can figure out which companies have the most exposure to Party City, which just went bankrupt. Which commercial REITs have the most exposure to Bed, to Bed Bath & Beyond? Which commercial REITs have the most exposure to AMC? There's one REIT that has 20% exposure to AMC cinemas. We think AMC could go bankrupt, by the way, for all the apes that are out there. So I think it's going to be a super in interesting year. And um, the second half of this year in 2024 is going to be the year for stock picking, right? To, to go through stocks and figure out, okay, 
which stocks do well in a slowing economy and which stocks don't. And believe it or not, the stock market may not move that much, but you could see specific industries move like 50% up and down. So it's going to be super, super interesting for people doing fundamental work. Yeah. And I mean, like that, that was a, it's a great breakdown of basically what you think is going to happen from the first half to next half or second half of this year, even into 2024. Um, but, you know, you, you, you said a lot of very interesting things there. And, and at the end of the day, the, the thing that I think you want, I want to highlight is that certain industries are well positioned for this and certain are not. And Absolutely. So, There's their companies like, trading at their 52 week highs that are in the industrial space. I won't, I won't name shorts on this podcast, but their companies trading at 52 week highs, basically all time highs in the industrial space. And people just think, oh yeah, margins are going to be fine. You know, this is an industrial company. It's a great business, but what happens in a recession? You start seeing industrial demand fall, right? And you look at, you know, look at Philly fed, New York manufacturing data, right? It's a leading indicator for manufacturing growth. And it's, it's the lowest I've seen it in, in over a decade. Yeah, exactly. And then, you know, we're also seeing on the on the flip side, we're seeing tech, you know, getting absolutely hammered, massive amounts of tech layoffs like left and right. But they're finding new jobs like you kind of mentioned there earlier, um, which are obviously great. For, you know, great it'll for get people. harder over time. But the first round of layoffs, everyone's finding the, finding a job. Right. There's just yeah. so much demand. You look at the Jolts data and the Jolts data is not perfect, but it shows that there's one point seven jobs available for everyone, any every single person looking. Yeah, exactly. And I actually had Neely on, um, not last week, but the week before. And she went awesome. over. She's great. Yeah, she went over the Jolt State and everything like so that. So I won't but, go into that. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I, I do want to ask you, too, that this one last question, because we have had like a little bull run, uh, maybe this like past week or so, that has people kind of thinking that that the market's already bottomed. And I kind of have a feeling where, where you're going to go on this one. But explain to people, like, do you, do you think that the bear market is over? Or do you think it's just a little quite uh, like, a, I guess, a little melt up, so to speak, as uh, our good friend Michael Gayat says on all the time on Twitter? So it's really interesting. I think this is our sixth major bear market rally. Um, we have seen several. I don't know if you were around in 2000, but um, 2001. But there were a lot of um, head fakes where people lost a fortune. Um, I'm not saying that, you know, the, that we're going to go straight lower from here. What I am saying is that similarly in 2008, after Lehman filed for bankruptcy on September 16th, everyone was buying the dip, right? And then the market fell another 30% and Ben Bernanke had to come in and, and basically create QE, QE1, QE2, Operation Twice, QE3, and he saved the market, right? It was like people basically bought the dip, then borrowed money. Like I knew people who sold their homes, then bought the market and then fucking lost half of that because they were in higher beta stocks going into March of 2009. So it's really important to, to keep some cash on the sidelines and not believe every head fake. Now, I will say that every bear market rally, you know, there's a higher chance that the next one's going to stick, right? You know, at some point, there the stocks that were more most affected by interest rates, if you believe interest rates have peaked, okay, or close to peaking, and we're going into recession in the long, the long end, um, we'll stay pinned and the yield curve will invert. What that means is that some of the longer duration names, when you look at, for example, tech companies, a lot of them are higher growth. So most of their value, if you do a discounted cash flow statement, is in the terminal value, right? Which is usually, you know, the value of the company from five years to perpetuity, right? And you use a perpetual growth model to estimate that. And these fundamental DCFs are not always accurate. But that's the basic idea. You're discounting the value of the company's future cash flows to the present. But because you don't have any ability to forecast past year five, right, they create this perpetuity growth model that estimates what the residual value of the company could be from year five to perpetuity. So the bigger that percentage of the DCF is, the more the company's, of the company's value that's coming from the future and less from current cash flow, the more sensitive it's going to be to interest rates. So one thing to note is that stable tech companies and stable defensive companies that generate cash flow but are still, you know, growth companies could actually rally before the rest of the market and could actually rally while industrial companies and retail companies 
are declining. Like today, you just had Serta file for bankruptcy, right? Last week, you had Party City file for bankruptcy. Believe it or not, you're going to have several companies file for bankruptcy this year in the consumer sector, and you're going to have several companies see declining profitability in the industrial sector. I mean, look at semiconductors, right? Their inventories are building. All the big companies people love, AMD, NVIDIA, you know, <clears throat> Intel have seen their valuations re-rate and they could still go lower because we don't know how much gross margins are going to fall in semiconductors. So if you're looking at something cyclical, be really careful. But some of the defensive companies that generate cash that have been beaten down, you know, if, if uh, by 2024, the market, you know, is, is thinking that interest rates are going to go back down to two to three percent, those could actually rally while other sectors fall. So so I want to caveat that and basically say that there are some companies that you can start building small positions in now and you're not going to time it perfectly. Um, but I wouldn't go all in right now. Like there are specific industries and specific stocks that will post terrible earnings this quarter, next quarter, and in the second half, of, especially the second half of this year. And there are stocks that could still derate 30, 40, 50% from here. So I view this as a bear market rally, but that doesn't mean you, you know, you, you can actually, there are some very large mega cap tech companies that don't manufacture anything that basically just sell subscriptions to people, right? That even if they miss earnings by a little bit, you know, their valuations around, you know, under 12 times EBITDA are pretty interesting right now. So, um, you know, build your lists and do your work. Um, what we do isn't easy. But um, I don't think this is over. Yeah. And I, hey, I, I agree with you there. I, I think that this is just like you said, just a little bear market rally that's got a little bit of that that hope, I guess, uh, of people. I think it's like anytime the Fed kind of shows any signs of slowing down the market, it's just yeah. rallying, right? So there's there's two really interesting data points. So you had big tax loss selling in December, right? You had. Tesla down, you know, down huge, right? Nothing to do with the NASDAQ, materially underperformed QQQ. You had some of the big tech companies, Amazon, Microsoft. You had a lot of these companies that were in very low ranges. And you had a lot of investors that were taking tax losses. Now, going into January, January tends to be a very seasonally positive month, especially the first half of January, because you have fund managers that sold positions in December and cleaned up their books, start repositioning. And you know, usually January tends to be a positive month for the market. We also haven't had really any companies report earnings outside of the banks, Alcoa and Netflix, right? So we've only had like a few large cap companies even report earnings or give guidance. So it's really, you know, the airlines obviously crushed it. You had United Airlines report, you had Delta Airlines report, and that makes sense because China's reopening, you know, the international flights have higher margins, they're higher ticket prices. But I think that rallies. I think those companies are pretty much, and I, I don't see a lot of upside after this airline rally. And you're going to see, you know, other sectors um, benefit with the Chinese reopening, you know, the Macau casinos, you know, some other sectors will uniquely benefit. But, you know, to say that this is over because inflation peaked, inflation peaked last summer, right? That's not the issue. The issue is figuring out um, the speed at which the Fed is going to pivot. Um, because believe it or not, keeping rates at 4% is terrible for the economy, right? It's terrible for a lot of sectors in the economy. It's terrible for a lot of companies. There's a $1 trillion high yield, high yield bond, bond market, 1.3 trillion, 1.4 trillion leveraged loans and 1.3 trillion private lending, all high yield. So these are riskier companies like triple B minus, BAA3 or lower rating. So in the floating rate part of that, that's like almost $3 trillion, like $2.7, $2.8 trillion. doesn't even include smaller cap mid middle market companies that are based off floating rates. They're based off what they call three-month LIBOR, one-month LIBOR, three-month SOFR, and one-month SOFR. And you know those rates are at 4.7%. So when interest rates were at zero and you were borrowing at LIBOR plus 350, right, you were borrowing at, if you had a one point. 1% LIBOR floor, let's say 75 basis point LIBOR floor, you're borrowing at 4.25% as a risky company. Today, you're borrowing at 9%. You're the same company, but because LIBOR and, and SOFR have gone up that much, now that's going to result in a lot of stress. And you combine that with a little bit of a sales decline, a little bit of increases in wages, that results in bankruptcies. So 
you're going to see a lot of bankruptcies this year, and that's not priced into the stock market. Yeah, and I, and I agree with you there. But Jay, you've been very generous with your time, and I feel like we could talk about this stuff for, for oh, hours forever. and days. Yeah. So uh, we'll, we'll have to wrap it here, but that leaves room for another conversation at another time. So I know yeah, you do a lot of great Twitter spaces and things like that. But before you go... Why don't you tell the audience where they can find you and what you got going on? Yeah, absolutely. So you know, we have obviously our Twitter handle um, at Special Sits News, which we provide kind of free news, opinion, insights, some cool graphs. A lot of our followers will DM us some cool graphs and charts and we will repost that. It's a good source of just interesting information. We also have a re uh, research website, specialsitsresearch.com, where we have nine full-time and part-time um, analysts that cover different sectors and different asset classes. So preferreds, closed-end funds, SPACs, growth equities, value equities, bonds. Um, and we cover a number of, to of topics, sometimes as unique as like interesting merger ARB situation, um, like uh, Aerojet Rocketdyne or a Twitter where we did really well, or an example of a interesting preferred or convert ARB where we're long something higher in the capital structure and short a stop against it to create an arbitrage. Um, so there are a lot of interesting opportunities and we have a whole high yield dividend uh, preferred coverage and closed end fund coverage. So you can go on there. There are a lot of um, different plans you can sign up for. The basic one, you're going to get uh, the basic plan, which is only $20 a month. You'll get a macro update and at least uh, a few ideas every month um, about different opportunities across different sectors we're looking at. So it's pretty inexpensive for what it is. Um, you're getting institutional quality type content and, um, you know, we look forward to, to growing it over time, you know, with our discord, we have a community of several hundred traders, the average age of which is over 40. So you have some guys there that are worth, you know, are managing over 200 million that are contributing their insights that are sharing their ideas that are asking questions. So I think it's one of the more mature, um, you know, chat rooms that, it, that are available and it's hundred percent focused on education. Um, so that comes with all the premium plans, the 45 and above per month. Um, so that's something that, you know, we're looking to grow as well. Awesome stuff. And I'll have all that linked in the show notes and uh, yeah, in the comment section below. So wherever you're watching this, yeah, go check out Jay and all the stuff he's got going on. I know you host great Twitter spaces as well. You're always very active on that platform. So be sure to follow him at special sit news. So, yeah, man. I like I said, we're gonna have to have you back on here. And, yeah, let's uh, do it. We do yeah. our Twitter Spaces, by the way, also every Sunday at six thirty p.m. Eastern. So, um, love to yeah. see you on there. We should do another one of these as well. Yeah, for sure. So, Jay, thanks so much, man. Thanks, Brandon. Take care.